0: Welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. My name is Randy McCracken,
1: and I'm Lindsay Kennedy.
0: And we want to welcome you to our second episode in a series on Kings. Uh, if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, we would really encourage you to go back and listen to that one because it provides the foundation and the framework for what we're discussing in this episode. And uh, this time we're going to be looking at the United Monarchy. And so we'll be briefly discussing the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. And even though this is uh, a little more detailed than our previous lesson, we're still taking the big picture approach. And so Lindsay and I are just looking to hit some of the highlights and learn some of the lessons that the Bible teaches us from the reigns of these three kings. So Lindsay... Go ahead and take it over.
1: Sure, okay, so yes, we are continuing our series in kingship in the Old Testament. And in this one, we'll be focusing on these three kings as Randy mentioned. It's really quite surprising uh, that that the United Kingdom of Israel really only survives for three kings. It's And for the remainder of the storyline until the exile or the exiles, uh, Israel is divided. And so we'll be looking at that in a future episode. But for now, there's only three kings that rule over Israel as a united kingdom, and it's just that's just the first thing to mention. Is it's it's often quite surprising when we think of it that way, is that it's only really under the reign of uh, Solomon where you have Israel at its peak, at, and it very quickly, in the narrative at least, turns sour. So we're beginning now to look at these three kings, and the other thing to say before we begin is just that we may think of kings and monarchies where the king is being he is completely autonomous he's completely free to do whatever he pleases the king makes the laws he changes the laws he uh, he can rule well if he wants poorly if he wants and no one can really say otherwise but that's not the way that it is in the biblical view of kingship in the kingship of the the bible the kingship of israel and the god of israel The kings are not autonomous. In fact, they're really like the lead servants. They're those who are supposed to serve God and lead God's people in serving him. They're very much submitted under the Lord's authority and kingship. And the success of the kings, as we're going to see, very much depends on whether they reflect God's character and obey his Torah and his law, or whether they try and make it on their own and stake out their own authority it's as soon as they start to do the latter that things go very bad for them. And so we may think of kings as making their own laws and changing the laws, as I said, but very much in Israel's view and the biblical view, the moment the kings start doing their own thing and and making their own laws or obeying their own ideas of what they should do, that's when everything goes sour very quickly and turns very negative very quickly. So the king is very much supposed to... Uh, in, like it says in Deuteronomy 17 that we discussed in the previous episode, the king is supposed to really be like a Bible scholar. He's supposed to be a Bible nerd that knows his Bible inside out and obeys God and his vision of what is right and wrong, rather than determining his own idea of what is right and wrong. So let's now move on to to look at these three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And the way that I think we can break it down is even though we're looking at three kings, there's really four stages in these kings the first of course is the reign of saul but there's really a transition period that's quite long at least in the text of uh, samuel where saul remains king but david is anointed by god and david is as saul is declining david is being exalted but he's not quite the king yet so that's going to be the second stage then we're going to look at the the reign of david and then the reign of solomon the first king king saul He is Israel's choice for a king. And that really takes us back to the early chapters of Samuel, where Israel asks Samuel for a king. Randy, is there anything you'd want to contribute here?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that as you're reading through Scripture, you're anticipating a king to come on the scene. Uh, We've been told it since the time of Abraham that kings would descend from his lineage and that through the tribe of Judah, Uh, kingship would come. Uh, We read in the book of Judges, just the book prior to this, at least in the Hebrew scriptures, it's the book prior to this, uh, how everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel at that time, which all leads us to anticipate Israel getting a king. And yet, when the subject is broached, Right away, there seems to be a negative reaction to the idea of having a king. At least Samuel reacts negatively. And the Lord himself says, look, Samuel, they haven't rejected you, from, uh, but they've rejected me from being king. Uh, And so the question that can arise to the reader is, well, um, if kingship is anticipated and prophesied about, what's the problem with having a king then? Uh, and if we examine the, the story more carefully, uh, it isn't so much having a king, but it's the way that Israel goes about it. There are a couple of problems, in my opinion, uh, with the way Israel goes about it. Number one, they demand a king. Uh, they don't really come to Samuel and say, Samuel, would you seek the Lord and, and, and see if, if, if he would appoint for us a king? But they come to Samuel and they say, make us a king. And uh, the second part that is a problem is they say that they want a king like all the nations. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. And as we have uh, talked about this theme of kingship in the scripture, we've noticed that uh, the king is to represent God. And Lindsay has uh, talked about this already at the beginning of this episode. Is to be in contrast to the kings of the nations. And so the request and the way that the request is made is all wrong from the beginning. And so I don't believe that it's uh, that God is opposed to kingship in any way. It's just that uh, Israel takes a misstep here, asking the wrong thing and asking it in the wrong way.
1: Great. Yes, I think that really helps, Randy, because it can become a stumbling block for readers of scripture. When we run into this passage, it looks as though kingship is a bad idea and that it was wrong that Israel had a king. But I think you really bring the nuance needed there for understanding what's happening here. And as we see the first choice of King is Saul, and really he reflects Israel getting what they ask for. And that's, he really embodies and exemplifies the problem with their request as we look, look at his storyline.
0: And by the way, Lindsay, if I could interrupt just briefly, um, because of the statement you just made, there's a pun going on there in the original text. You said Israel got the king they asked for, and Saul's name in Hebrew actually means to ask. And so when they ask for a king, literally they are sauling for a king, Mm. and so God gives them what they sauled for.
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I love that insight, and it's so clear then that what we see in Saul is is what they wanted when they asked this question. And this is why it was a problem. And so Saul is, it says in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, it says that he was a handsome young man and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. And we find... In scripture, in narrative, it's quite rare to have a physical description of a character. In, of course, in modern writing, we want everyone to be fleshed out in such a way. But in scripture, it's quite rare. And when we do see someone being described physically, it's usually for a very important purpose. So here, Saul is described as handsome and tall. And that sounds great. It sounds like the sort of person you want as a king. But that's very much according to external uh, standards rather than the standards that God will have. And in fact, in the book of Saul, we find that when it comes to anointing David, that God actually says to Samuel that he does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the inward appearance. And so Saul is very much a king that's got great outward appearance as as the story begins. But even at his anointing, uh, we find that he's hiding, you know, that he's actually reluctant and, and scared. And So, even from the very beginning, we find Saul has some features that are less than desirable.
0: Yeah, and I think there's two things going on here, Lindsay. On the one hand, if if you look at ancient inscriptions that uh, have the figures of kings, the kings are always pictured as larger than the people they rule or larger than the enemies that they're conquering. And so this idea that a king has to be tall or a king has to be large uh, is sort of ingrained in the ancient Near Eastern psyche. And so when you have a, a king like Saul who is head and shoulders above everyone else, uh, Samuel's even going to say, you know, when, when Saul is a chosen king, when they, when they pull him out of hiding from among the baggage, He's going to say, look at this guy. He looks like a king. You know, Mm -hmm. he's head and shoulders Mm -hmm. above all of us. And so if he looks like a king, he must be a king. Well, and as you pointed out, that's a huge mistake. Because uh, one of the messages of the books of Samuel is that appearances can be deceiving. And you quoted the passage there in 1 Samuel 16, 7, where God doesn't look at the outward appearances man does, but God looks on the heart. And so that is definitely one of the the key uh, lessons here at the very beginning of the kingship of Saul is this idea of looking at the appearance rather than looking on what's in the heart.
1: Mm-hmm. And so as the story moves on with Saul, we, we could get uh, in the details here, but really there's just a few things to mention from the zoomed out big perspective, is that he reveals himself to be a poor leader of men when it comes to battle, he makes some really poor choices and makes some rash decisions. As that point where he makes that vow that no one will will eat until we win this victory, which is just a really poor decision to make when you're fighting. You need to be strong and healthy and all the rest. And that leads to uh, Jonathan eating some honey to get some energy. And when he wins this battle, Saul then has to feels as though he has to maintain his oath and, and kill his own son because he made this rash vow. He doesn't end up doing it, but that just shows how poor of a leader he is, that he makes these foolish decisions and then um, is placed in this awkward situation afterwards. Whether he keeps his word or doesn't keep his word, it's going to look bad either way. Uh, and then even more importantly, he we see that he's really a man-fearer rather than a God-fearer. He doesn't fear the Lord, he fears man. And so he he lets the people rule over him sometimes or at least that's how he presents the problem Uh, when he disobeys god sometimes he blames the people rather than taking responsibility Uh, and there really there's this one instance where he's waiting for samuel to to make a sacrifice and the people start leaving and he starts getting worried and so he decides to make a sacrifice himself which is against the law and so here's a man who is afraid and takes things into his own hands rather than trusting that the Lord will give him uh, victory and, and what he needs to succeed as a king.
0: Yeah, Lindsay, and we had talked in the previous episode about the linkage between this idea of the priestly service and, and the kingship and how Adam was a priest king and Melchizedek was a priest king and even Abram himself offered sacrifices to God, and he acted like a king. And so there's this constant theme in the early portions of Scripture of the, the connection between the, the priestly office and, and the kingly office. And Saul is a fail, failure in both aspects. As you pointed out, he makes rash vows. He offers up sacrifices that he uh, hasn't been commanded to. Samuel said, you wait till I come, I'll offer the sacrifice. And um, the point that we're going to get to in just a moment is that Samuel comes to Saul and he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so Saul's all mixed up um, with the idea of the proper priestly duties um, that he should um, be following, as well as the fact that he's not a good leader of men and he is proving himself not to be a very good king.
1: Right. And this all culminates in the final story really in first samuel 15 where samuel gives Saul one more chance to obey and really he's he's told to really destroy the amalekites and wipe them out completely which raises the whole question of the morality of these things which really needs to be its own episode i think but he's given this command and what's important in the text at least is that he doesn't really follow the command rightly he spares the king himself and then he also doesn't devote to destruction all of the the cattle and livestock but he keeps them and he says well i was going to off- offer them as a sacrifice to the lord and all the rest but that's not following what he's told to do and and so in that story he's then rejected as god's anointed king so even though he continues to reign for quite some more time at least he re- reigns until the end of first samuel at this point, he's rejected as God's choice of a king.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. There are actually some scholars that either want to blame Samuel or blame God and say that uh, they were too hard on Saul. But as we followed this biblical theme of kingship, we've, we've noted that to be God's representative means to keep his word. And what Samuel says to Saul is, um, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Um, Just another interesting feature in this story of rejection, Lindsay, which is found in 1 Samuel 15. There are a number of things said in the story of Saul's rejection that are echoed both in the story of David's sin with Bathsheba and the judgment that comes upon him by the prophet Nathan. And then later, Solomon's uh, failure as king. And I just want to whet the appetite of our listeners if if they've never uh, studied this before or thought about it. For instance, in the story of Saul's rejection, we're told that one of his failures was that he spared some sheep and that he shouldn't have spared because he was commanded to kill everything. When Nathan tells a parable of a ewe lamb to David, he talks about a rich man and a poor man. And he says that the rich man spared not to take from his own flock. Now, that's an awkward sentence in English. It's also an awkward sentence in Hebrew. But uh, the scripture throws in that word spared, which is a key word here in the story of Saul's rejection, because Saul spared sheep he shouldn't have. And Nathan here is accusing David of sparing sheep from the large flock and, and taking the poor little ewe lamb uh, from, from the man. So there's a connection there. Uh, there's other connections. In the story of Solomon, uh, you might remember that um, a prophet comes along uh, and tears up a robe, and he gives 10 pieces to a guy named Jeroboam, and he says, you're going to reign over the northern tribes. And so we have this idea of tearing of a robe and tearing away the kingship from Solomon but not totally because the Lord says, I'm my faithfulness to David. We have the same thing going on in the rejection of Saul. When Samuel turns to leave, Saul reaches out and grabs his robe. And we're told that the robe tore. And Samuel says to him, today, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. So those are just you know, one similarity there with the story of David, one with the story of Solomon, but there's a a lot more. And so it's really fascinating to compare the wording and the themes uh, in the in those three uh, stories where the king's sin is described, or in Saul's case, where his rejection is described.
1: That's fascinating, Raddy. I'm glad you included that. I didn't know those connections. So yeah, that definitely whets the appetite. And it just shows that these kings are to be compared, contrasted, and that we see that each one of them really doesn't live up to God's ideal, even David as we're going to see. So moving forward into the second stage, there's this transitionary period where God actually immediately after Saul's failure, God anoints David secretly through Samuel. And so David is now God's choice for a king, but it takes some time before he actually is reigning over the kingdom. And as Saul is declining, David is ascending. And so we see this overlap period where David is really blessed from the Lord. And he has this moment, of course, defeating Goliath, that we all know that story. And there's many other, many other uh, successes that he has in military battle. And Saul begins to become jealous of him. Uh, the people have that song, you know, that Saul has slayed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so there's this multiplication of David's, uh, blessing and success and prosperity. And Saul in response becomes jealous. And it even leads to the point where he tries to kill David on several occasions. So David has to flee, but even in the wilderness, he's prosperous. God blesses him through military battle, through bringing people to him that, that fight on his behalf. And there's, several instances where he's even given a chance to kill Saul, but he never gives into that. And he says, I will not do this thing. I will not kill the Lord's anointed. And so David really shows us the example of a suffering servant who's waiting to be exalted. He's in this way, he really foreshadows Jesus. In fact, who he's anointed king, but it's not until later on that he's actually exalted as king. But in the meantime, he's this suffering leader of God's people and he shows us what it means to wait well and to wait for God to exalt you.
0: Yes, absolutely right. Let me just reflect on a couple of things uh, regarding Saul's decline and David's rise. And and the first is this story about uh, David's battle with Goliath. In that story, we have a microcosm of why Saul isn't cut out to represent God and David is. Um, We read the story of how David volunteers and Saul says, oh, you know, but you're a youth. And um, so Saul finally says, well, if you're going to go out, put on my armor. And the armor is a representation of a king like all the nations. This is what kings of the nations trust in. They trust in their military might in their weaponry. The very things that Deuteronomy 17 tells the king, do not trust in. Deuteronomy 17 says, trust in me, know my word. And when David goes out, he rejects uh, the way of Saul by taking the armor off. He says, I can't wear this. I haven't proved it. And instead, he goes out in the might and the power of the Lord. And he says, the battle is the Lord's. And he gives God all the glory. uh, And he trusts that God is going to give him the victory. And so David then becomes a symbol of the type of king that reflects God's glory uh, and uh, rules the way God would want human beings to rule. And that is by trusting him and obeying his word. Uh, The second thing I would point out is um, in one sense, Saul's a tragic figure. You sort of feel sorry for him as you watch him, you know, have this spirit come upon him and he has these fits and uh, he's, he's pursuing David and he can't catch him. And he's, you know, bemoaning his fate to his family and to his fellow soldiers. And uh, he ends up, you know, committing suicide. But this is a picture of a person, and I, and I wonder, you know, some of our listeners uh, might relate to this. We've all had things in our life that perhaps they were given to us by God for a period of time. Uh, but then it was time to raise someone else up in that place or uh, to take over whatever the responsibility might be to take over. And there is such a temptation toward envy and toward resenting that person that God is putting in the place you used to be in. Uh, and so the story tells us that Saul doesn't deal with this well. But there's a contrast because Jonathan, who is Saul's son, he, he plays a, a foil to Saul. Because Jonathan, we would expect to want the throne. He seems to be the rightful heir. He's Saul's son, after all. But Jonathan doesn't grasp for the throne. In fact, he supports David. And he even says to David, uh, you're going to be king and I'm going to be next to you. And so Jonathan represents the attitude that we should all have of leaving things in God's hands uh, and not trying to resist. And the tragic story of Saul is that he constantly fights against God until his final breath.
1: Definitely, yeah. Saul is definitely a tragic figure. And and yet David is, at least in the beginning of his reign, he is, is upheld as a righteous king, the, the king that rules after God's own heart. And so when Saul dies david actually laments him and speaks well of him at the beginning of second samuel and shortly after that he's then appointed as and recognized as israel's king and there are some major highlights in david's story some major points that move the story forward in terms of the old testament story of redemption one is that david conquers jerusalem and he actually moves the ark to jerusalem and this is a very big deal really we find this in second samuel Chapter 6, we also find it in uh, Chronicles as well. And it's even given more space in Chronicles to just talk about how this was a very big climactic moment where God begins to rule from Jerusalem and the, God's throne is set up in Jerusalem through the ark being moved there and it becoming more of a permanent location. David and God are ruling together from Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the center of... Of when we think of Israel and the nation of Israel we think of Jerusalem Uh, it's the center really from here on out until the exile but even in the return there's this hope of rebuilding Jerusalem specifically this is all due to the fact that David sets up his kingdom and his throne in Jerusalem so he moves the ark there and it's in response to this that David then says well this is going to be the more permanent location from which I will, from where I will rule and from where the Lord will rule. And so he wants to build the Lord a house. He wants to build him a temple, a place where the Lord will dwell more permanently. And there's this, this is where we find the classic Davidic covenant. If we've heard of this, and this is a familiar concept, this is one of the major covenants in the Old Testament, the covenant with David, where David promises to, or desires to make a house for the Lord. And at first uh, Nathan the prophet says, "You know go go for it, this is great but he very quickly hears from the Lord actually God wants to do something slightly different here And so through the Lord Na- Nathan speaks this prophecy to David, which we call the Davidic Covenant, where David wants to build this house for the Lord but there's a play on words where God says, you know actually I'm going to build you a house, which is not obviously a temple for David to live in but it's it's a play on words this idea of the Davidic house or the Davidic family, a dynasty of kings that would come through David's line. So David, uh, God promises himself to David and says, I'm going to commit to you and your family, to your offspring, that it's through you that the kings will come and that I will bless them and I will uphold this line. And this is the promise that God makes. He promises that he'll be loyal to these kings, but they must also be faithful to him. It doesn't say that he will endorse everything that they will do, but rather that they must remain loyal and faithful to him. But like a father to a son, he will actually discipline these kings. He will not simply cast them off, but he'll discipline this line of kings and lead them in obedience. And then in this promise as well, there's the promise that it won't be David that builds the temple because he has done much uh, violence in his lifetime, but it's actually going to be David's son who will build the temple. And so that sets us up for the kingship of Solomon. A few other things that are worth mentioning about the Davidic covenant. First of all, it's a very common and uh, prominent theme in scripture in the Old Testament. This is 2 Samuel 7, where we find everything I've been discussing here, but we also find the Davidic covenant quite prominent in the Psalms. We find it as underlying uh, psalm 2 but psalm 72 as well psalm 89 is really all about the davidic covenant and actually approaching it from a negative point of view of why have all these kings failed is what psalm 89 is considering and then psalm 132 also looks forward to god uh, renewing this covenant with the kings but psalm 72 is worth considering and just quickly here is that psalm 72 It's describing a king that looks a little bit like Solomon. Maybe it's uh, what they hoped that Solomon would be, or, or it's just a king that really carries on the promise that Solomon had in his reign. But at the very end of this psalm, it speaks about this king and it says, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And that is really like a hyperlink or a connection all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants, God would bless the nations, bless the whole world. And here we're seeing that it's specifically going to come through a king in David's line, that this blessing to the nations will come. It'll come through one of David's sons uh, because it's connecting this through the the word, uh, the blessing that all the nations will be blessed through this king. So that then anticipates the messiah really that the ultimate king of david's sons would be the messiah so the messiah would be a son of david
0: lindsay i think that's such a good point that you made about the connection between uh the king bringing blessing to the nations and the promise to abraham in genesis 12 about through how through his descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed so we clearly see that this uh promise and this hope of a Davidic Messiah is God's way and God's plan of bringing this blessing to all nations. I just wanted to touch on one thing in the story of David up to this point. Um, Looking back at 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 9, this is actually an extraordinary section of scripture that talks about David's kingship. It summarizes a lot of battles as well as having the promise of the Davidic covenant. But what is interesting about these chapters is that there are a number of ancient prophecies that David is fulfilling in these chapters. And just to cite one, uh, it. It has to do with David conquering the ancient enemies of Israel and expanding the borders of the territory of Israel. And This actually goes back to a promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, uh, verses 18 through 21. And there are a number of other prophecies from the Torah that are fulfilled. Another one would be the fact that the the Lord chooses a place for his name to dwell, Deuteronomy 12. And as you were talking about, David has chosen Jerusalem and brought the ark there, and it's where the temple is going to be built. And so uh, this is the high point of David's reign, and a lot of great prophecies uh, are being fulfilled through him. But then, of course, uh, things take a turn for the worse, don't they?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, only a few chapters after we find uh, David and the Davidic Covenant being given to David, we have David's moral failure with Bathsheba. And this is, of course, a very uh, familiar story to our listeners, I'm sure. Even though there's many details that can be discussed, uh, we're just going to look at a big picture, which is that this is really like David's quote unquote his fall moment. You know, if you think of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden and the fall of all mankind, David really has a repeat of this for himself. It's his fall moment where he sees and takes Bathsheba just as Adam and Eve saw and took the fruit. Uh, David actually says that they saw that the fruit was good and David says that he saw that Bathsheba was, uh, the translation is beautiful or something along those lines, but in the Hebrew it's that, that she was good. So it's very much a similar kind of thing of David seeing something and taking it and this is his own fall. This sin is um, sexual sin in David's life is actually repeated uh, in his own descendants, and we so we see that with Am- Amnon and Tamar, which is David's son, um, really raping Tamar, and then Tamar's brother, one of another one of David's uh, sons through different wife, Absalom, then rebels against David's kingship, and David actually has to flee for a period until. Um, Absalom's rebellion is defeated. This, of course, is, there's many things we could take away from this, but I think one of the main points we can take from this is that obviously there's the moral failure, but there's also this idea that the promise to David and the Davidic covenant is put in question in these chapters because it's through one of David's sons that this that the temple is going to be built and it's through his sons that really the promise to Abraham is going to come about. But immediately after, just a few chapters later, we see his sons really rebelling against each other and killing each other and all the rest and so it's very much like uh, Cain and Abel after the the fall of Adam and Eve and so it puts the question, uh, puts the covenant with David into question here. Is there anything you'd like to add Randy?
0: Yeah, just a few reflections on things that you said, Lindsay. Um, I like the connection that you made between David's fall and Adam's fall. Again, both were kings, weren't they? And both disobeyed the word of the Lord and experienced the consequences of them. Um, That progression he saw and he took does remind us of Genesis 3, uh, where it said they saw the fruit and they took it. And I would add a third verb to the description of David's sin. It says he saw her and he took her. It also says he laid with her. And the reason I point that out is because those three verbs are also found when Nathan accuses David of his sin. And then again, those same three verbs are repeated at the end of chapter 12, that describes David's forgiveness. So we come full circle in the story by examining those three verbs. Uh, You're absolutely right, Lindsay, that David's sin calls into question the Davidic covenant. One of the great things about the story, however, is that when Absalom rebels against David, he humbles himself. He doesn't uh, try to strike back. And of course, God restores David to the throne, which is a sign of God's faithfulness in spite of David's sin and his own faithlessness, yet his response of humility, which is so different from that of Saul. Saul was going to hold on to the throne no matter what, where David says, well, Lord's will for me to lose the throne and for Absalom to have it, then I'll give it over to him. And it's that response of humility that that brings about David's restoration and continues to, to give us hope that this Davidic covenant is going to, to continue on. And so then we have the next
1: major uh, king in this storyline, the next king that, that moves things forward, which is Solomon. And so by this point, the expectations are high that this is the son of david uh the other sons in the the ending of samuel uh disqualified themselves really and so here's the son that god is going to appoint which is solomon and so all of the expectations are high that this is the the expected one that would that would build the temple and maybe he would be the one that would rule righteously and it's it's really sad because solomon's story i think is very tragic because he He starts so well, he begins by asking for wisdom from the Lord, and there's this great moment where he could have asked for all these things, but he asks for wisdom that he would rule well, and God blesses him and says, because of this, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I will prosper you, and so, seems like there's this great beginning here, Uh, and even so much so that Solomon really is, you could see that he's asking, not just for wisdom, but Wisdom to rule in the ideal that God has set forth in Deuteronomy 17 in Solomon's early reign We see the kingdom of Israel at its absolute height in the highest point that it reaches, which is that it's a time of peace It's a time of wealth. It's a time where Israel prospers and it even says each each man sits under his own vine this idea of prosperity Uh, Solomon's wisdom is renowned. It's so great that people from other nations the gentiles come to solomon to receive from his wisdom which really sounds like something like you would find in um psalm 72 really that the nations will call him blessed and they'll be blessed through him it sounds great uh he builds the temple of course and there's this glorious temple it's to to house the ark of the lord's presence and so everything seems to be off to a great start Uh, i know if there's anything you'd want to add there um randy in terms of the greatness of Solomon's kingdom.
0: No, you're just absolutely right. It it really builds within the reader as we read through uh, Solomon's reign, great hope and great expectation, which makes the downfall, which I know you're about to speak about, all the more uh, painful.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a key point in the narrative of 1 Kings chapter 11 where it makes it really clear that, okay, Solomon turns away. But what's interesting is, even though we've just described this, the heights of his kingdom and the greatness of his rule, even in that narrative, there's some warning signs that if we're reading really carefully and attentively, we will pick up these warning signs. So if we, if we compare Solomon's reign with Deuteronomy 17, specifically those ideas of multiplying horses, multiplying gold, and having many wives, and them turning one away, we we look at those three criteria and we reread the height of solomon's kingdom unfortunately we find evidence of each of these things so even though the narratives describing solomon's reign as if this is the high point and in many ways it is the high point we can see these warning signs that amongst this description we find things like solomon importing horses specifically from egypt which is the very place that the king was not supposed to bring horses and then we see him multiplying gold as well, which was also spoken of in Deuteronomy 17. And he marries the the daughter of Pharaoh, which scholars debate whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. But as we move on and we see in First Kings 11, it says that he married many wives and that they turned his heart away. So he married all these different wives, uh, all these different uh, queens or princesses of other nations and foreign women that probably solidified his kingdom and brought great relationships with these other kingdoms. But what it did was it brought in, they brought in their gods and their religions. And I suppose wanting to be a quote-unquote good husband, Solomon wanted to make room for these other, the worship of these other gods. And it's really tragic because he starts so well, but then he fails in the in the three criteria that God sets up for the king. And even though it's not made explicit till 1 Kings 11, we can see those warning signs earlier. In the narrative.
0: And once again, we see the consistency of the scriptural testimony of what a king is to be and what a king is not to be. And sadly, though Solomon seems to start off on a good foot, uh, he quickly turns and starts doing things contrary to God's word. And in the end, his heart is turned to the worship of other gods when the most important thing that he was to do as the king. Was to turn Israel toward the true God and to model that in his own life and in his own reign.
1: So in the following chapters of the Book of Kings, we see this really as the beginning of the end for the united monarchy. Solomon, at the height of his power, much like David at the height of his power, turns away and has this abuse of power and this moral failure. It even looks as though Solomon begins to look more like Pharaoh ruling over the nation of Israel because he has this forced labor and and so on. These other things that make him look like Pharaoh. So Israel was brought out of oppression to Egypt in their slavery to Egypt. And now they have a king who's ruling over them. And it's, it's as if the land of Israel has become like Israel enslaved to Pharaoh. They were enslaved in their own land. So if Solomon is like, Pharaoh and beginning to look like Pharaoh, then Israel really needs a new Moses. And that leads us sort of as a teaser
0: into the following episode. Great. Well, thanks, Lindsay. And we appreciate everyone tuning in and listening to this episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. We want to remind you that we will have some things on the website, some links uh, to various sources that you can check out And we always appreciate your comments. If you're enjoying these episodes or other episodes, if there's certain things you would like to hear us talk about, uh, please feel free to enter them in the comments, and we would certainly consider uh, producing some episodes uh, along those lines. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to um, talking about the Kings in the future episode of Beyond Reading the Bible.
1: For more episodes and links to resources for each episode, visit our page, beyondreadingthebible.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Any review that you want to leave on iTunes or Google Play, or any share on social media would go a huge way towards getting the word out there. This podcast requires a chunk of time and research and writing, recording, editing, promotion. It even has some financial costs. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider joining our community at Patreon. By going to patreon.com forward slash digital seminary. For the price of a cup of coffee, you could make a big difference. There's also some great rewards as well. Special thanks to one of our supporters, Evan Baysmore, for making this episode possible. Music is by Heritage. Their music can be found at heritage.com, and I need to mention that the A in Heritage is a V. Randy McCracken can be found at Bible Study with Randy.com, and I can be found at mydigitalseminary.com.